1: Sports is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Enjoy the show.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live as we begin a Monday after a wild Sunday, not only in the NBA but in the NFL. We'll get to that a little bit later on as we bring in the TV voice of the Denver Nuggets, Chris Marlowe, uh, after one of the more, well, I guess you could, looking at it from both sides. Euphoric the Lakers, devastating for the Denver Nuggets, the TV voice of the Nuggets. You called it last night. How did you see the last set, set of sequences?
2: Well, it was a crushing loss for the Nuggets. Uh, it, it looked like they had it. Uh, they played really well in the second half. Uh, they had it set up down the stretch. It looked like on that scramble play, Jamal Murray blocked the ball out of bounds, the Nuggets. Uh, had to hold on for two and a half seconds, and they couldn't do it. Lakers ran a pretty good play out of bounds, but there was confusion for the Denver Nuggets. Uh, Coach Michael Malone inserted Plumlee in for Millsap late, uh, and Plumlee, for one reason or another, did not stay with Anthony Davis, who was having a great night. I think he thought that there was going to be a switch on the play, and, uh, and Anthony Davis ended up wide open for the jump shot. There was a late contest by Jokic, but that was just a breakdown in what the Nuggets did. That was either going to be a switch, or Plumley had to stick with him, and there wasn't much of a LeBron screen, so I think there was confusion there, and it, it, it led to a, uh, a heartbreaking loss for the Denver Nuggets, because it seems to be a lot
0: different if it was 1-1 right now. Yeah, it actually all started with the Alex Caruso missed three, and then a scramble to the ball was hit. And then it was when it was knocked out of bounds. I mean, that's the point in hindsight where the Nuggets had to get that rebound, and they just they just didn't. Well, you know, the Lakers are a great rebounding team. Right. They're big, they're long, they're
2: physical. Uh, the Nuggets really don't have the the personnel to match that. Uh, offensive rebounding has been a, a big deal uh, for uh, the Lakers the entire series at least so far in the first couple of games. So uh, I'm not sure exactly what you do there, Howard. Uh, the Nuggets scrambled. They didn't come over the rebound. Murray did block the shot,
0: right. and then uh, they needed to play defense for two and a half seconds and couldn't do it. So that's that's on them. Well, you look at 2020 where the NBA is, and you see on one side a six foot eleven guy making a three-pointer, and before that a 7-foot guy scoring 11 straight Nuggets points, including a hook shot, to give him the lead, Uh, and and Anthony Davis scored the last 10 Laker points. I mean, in going back in the NBA, you'd never see that, where where Biggs would be that much of a dominant factor outside of Will Chamberlain. Well, the NBA has been
2: moving towards a guard-oriented league for, you know, past five years, I would say, or ever since Steph Curry came along. Uh, That's even longer than that, but uh, you know, I always say that it seems like guards and wings, they they make the difference. Uh, It's hard to go without them, but now uh, big men, uh, at least in this series, uh, seem to rule the day. Uh, Jokic has been fabulous. Anthony Davis has been out of this world. LeBron has been terrific, so Uh, It's been the the Lakers' big two that has really been uh, big factors in this game. And and you have to give credit to the Lakers' others, uh, you know, Dwight Howard and Caruso and and some
0: of these other guys that have been good, too. Yeah, I I would agree with that. You know, uh, Jamal Murray also came up with 25 last night, but his shot was not uh, as good as it had been. And then Jokic not only scores, but other ways to score— I mean, he gets to the foul line a lot. He got to the point, and this is kind of comical to me, my wife is watching the game with me last night, and she says, how come the Lakers can't stop that Jokic guy? And I said, because he's great. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was a,
2: it was interesting. Uh, in the first game, there was a lot of grousing, uh, from, uh, n- not necessarily from the Denver Nuggets,
0: Well, to underscore your statement, 33 free throws versus 19 for the Lakers. But to the Lakers' credit, they made 18 of them.
2: Yeah, and to the Nuggets' discredit,
0: they missed a bunch too. I don't have the final tally there, but I think they missed 10 free throws. Uh, actually, it was eight. It was actually eight. Eight? They missed eight? Yeah, it's 25 of 33.
2: Told me he goes. You'd be surprised at how many games are decided by free throw shooting late, and uh, you know that was really an Achilles' heel. The, the, the sad part of it, at least if you're if you're looking at it from the Nuggets' point of view, is that PJ Dozier was kind of a spark off the bench. Mm-hmm. You know, little used guy from South Carolina, pretty good player. You know, a uh, defense scores. Uh, took two charges in that game. He really gave the gave the Nuggets life. And, uh, unfortunately, he was uh, miss, missed a bunch of
0: free throws down the stretch that really cost Denver. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was only one out of five from the free throw line. Um, the rebounding totals are, are noticeable. Lakers with 44 rebounds, Nuggets with 31, even more noticeable. But Lakers get 13 offensive rebounds. That means multiple opportunities to score, as you know. And they used it. And, look, this game was nothing different so far as totals are concerned. It's been Davis and LeBron from game one, from their start of their playoffs. It's been the two guys that have provided somewhere between 50 and 60 points every night. And that's that's hard to match. Well, I think they're going to get that.
2: I think they're going to get that most of the way. Now, the Nuggets, what they counter with? Jokic, 30. Murray at 25. Where they need to do a little bit better is get help from their others. Uh, I thought Michael Porter Jr. played pretty well in that first half offensively. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had 15 points in 19 minutes and then didn't play much in the second half. And he's one of the, the better Nuggets rebounders. And you know from our conversations, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. I thought maybe he should have played a little bit more. Uh, you've got guys like Millsap, Grant, uh, Plumlee the other nuggets bigs they got to rebound the ball better and so does jokic jokic i believe only had four rebounds last night and uh, that's just not enough playing against the lakers maybe the best
0: rebounding team in the league no they actually he actually had 6 but i understand your point and, and that that brings the question was anybody discussing and i'm sure look michael porter junior has not been shy and i'm surprised that you didn't hear him grousing about it after the game about the minutes he got well
2: uh, he did have five fouls, and I and I can see why uh,
0: Coach took him out.
2: But I think they were down, they were down, I believe eight or ten, fairly late. And I thought they could have used Porter's offense. You know, it's always like, well, do you put in the defensive guys or do you put in the offensive guys? Uh, I I kind of feel like when you're down ten, you put in the offensive guys. You need someone to hit a, you know, two threes in a row to bring you right back. Uh, but Malone chose not to use it down the stretch. Uh, and I don't know if it cost them. I mean, they had a chance to win, but uh, for
0: some reason just couldn't pull it out. Well, the Nuggets came from 16 down in the third quarter, Uh, but the lead uh, shrunk to four uh, entering the fourth quarter, and by then it was anybody's game. But the one constant, Chris, that I've noticed about this Nuggets team, and it's obvious, uh, down 3-1 to Utah, win. Down 3-1 to the Clippers, win. But down 0-2 is... I think, a little bit of a different story. Well, it's only a different story for me
2: if they lose Game 3. If they come back to win Game 3, then it indicates that maybe the Nuggets have figured out the Lakers a little bit and maybe have figured out how to play them better on defense, uh, how, to, how to score a little bit better. Obviously, you can't go down 3-0 because no NBA team has ever come back from that. But, uh, you know, game, game 3 is going to be an important one. The Nuggets are a pretty resilient team. I mean, all season long, it seems like they've been coming back from these crazy deficits. And even last night when they got down, I'm sure everybody in Nuggets Nation was saying, well, we'll just come back. And then they started to kind of peck away. They get some momentum in the third quarter. And then in the fourth quarter, they get it going with Murray and Jokic. And, uh, boy, wasn't Jokic
0: sensational down Ooh. the stretch? That, when he backed down Anthony Davis for the hook shot late yep. to give them the lead, that was just um, – that was something to watch. Well, I mean, he's got the advantage. he's He's, he's got size and bulk, and he's very strong. And, and so to back down Davis, uh, you know, is just credit to what, how Jokic gets where he wants to get. Uh, Turnover is also a factor last night. The Lakers turned it over 23 times. The Nuggets turned it over 19 times. Uh, I, I thought – and this is just me making an observation. Uh, the one thing that bothers me about LeBron, it's not last night, and it's not this series. It's been a constant. LeBron takes the dribble down very low. He takes the shot clock down very low to where he's left either with a desperation shot or, uh, or the Nuggets react, in this case, effectively to where somebody else had a rush a shot and didn't get off a quality shot I just, uh, if I'm I'm Vogel, am I saying to him, hey, LeBron, you might want to get into the offense a little sooner. (laughs) Well, that's certainly a nitpick, Howard, with all the great stuff that LeBron does. Right. You know,
2: pass, rebound, (laughs) score, defend, all the stuff that he does. Yeah, maybe they get into
0: that a little bit late, but, uh, boy, they're pretty good at executing at the end of the shot. Yeah, I I guess. They made four four buckets right as the horn went off
2: uh, that would have been a shot clock violation you know LeBron is so valuable and he's so difficult to defend because he's so big and he can he can see over people he can make passes that nobody else can but I think going forward I think the Nuggets they have to figure out a way to slow Anthony Davis down Uh, I think that's the key there When, when he gets the ball uh, once he starts dribbling or once he puts the ball on the floor, I think you've got to come at him with the double and make him into a playmaker. I, I think that that is the one
0: weak spot of his game. He's not really a playmaker. He's, nice. just a, he's a scorer. He's an elite
2: scorer. But I think if you can get him to pass, you know, I'd rather have you know, Rondo and Caruso and KCP and some of these other guys taking long three-pointers uh, instead of what's going on now. So... Uh, we'll see kind of how it plays out. But uh, double team AD, go under the screens on
0: Rondo, and I think you'd be doing a little bit better on defense. No, I completely agree. And coincidentally, Charles Barkley said uh, after the game that he wishes LeBron would not take the shot clock down as low as he did. And, you know, I don't think Barkley is the master of an NBA intelligence. It just happened to make that observation last night. Uh, I, I look at uh, the way things are going, people. Automatically say, "Well, the Nuggets are dead." And yeah, they came from three-one down. They came from three-one down. But this is the Lakers. I don't see the Lakers relaxing for one second. I don't see them taking their foot off the gas for one second. Uh, you know, they they can they can read. They see that they came back twice in two different series. And, and I expect the Lakers to match the intensity. Uh, come tomorrow night. Why did it get the tribute
2: to LeBron? And his uh, championship mentality. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the Clippers who were kind of full of themselves and, and, and thought they had the series locked up. You know, I expect they'll be serious, very serious in Game Three. But I don't think that uh, that precludes the Nuggets from winning Game Three. No. Uh, I, I think one thing for the Nuggets, Howard, is their first halves have not been good. The second half's been brilliant, and I'm not sure what they're doing at halftime. I think we talked about this, that the adjustments that Michael Malone has been making have been pretty darn good. I don't know how they figure out how to, how to come all the way back, but they've got to play 48 minutes, and I think they're not getting that in the first half. And so to go into every single game down 10, down 8, down 5 at half, I mean, that's a burden that's, that's that's very difficult to overcome. So we'll see if they can get off to a little better start uh, in
0: the next game. Let me ask you this. You just touched on something I, I, that I want to follow up on. You said you thought that the Clippers were full of themselves. What gave you that feeling? You know, I think
2: during the regular season, they just – They just had the look of a team that thought they could turn it on and turn it off whenever they wanted to. They know they have at least as good a talent as anybody in the league. They've got guys sitting out every other game. Kawhi is playing what he wants. Same with Paul George. Uh, I I just felt that probably the cockiest bunch of, of players in the NBA. And so I felt the Nuggets going into that series, Howard, they had one great advantage is that the the Clippers did not take them seriously. And after they ran up the 3-1 lead, I think they took them less seriously. And then it kind of snowballed when the Nuggets started to play well and and win those games coming from behind. But uh, unfortunately, I don't think the Lakers have done that, although they might have wanted to play the Clippers, or maybe they didn't. Uh, But... uh, I think overconfidence is a great equalizer, and I think that's going to be the Achilles' heel for the L.A.
0: Clippers going forward. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. When you look at LeBron James and the focus that he has on winning another championship, there's no way in my mind, and I don't know what goes on inside his head, but there's no way in my mind that LeBron James is taking anybody seriously. Uh, Not seriously enough, I I mean. So... uh, I, I think that that one thing that LeBron provides the Lakers that a lot of teams don't have, they got a coach on the sideline. They got a coach on the court. and it's two different people.
2: Yeah, he's uh, you know he's terrific. There's no doubt about it. He's one of the all-time greats. Uh, this is a great chance for him to win his fourth title. Uh, if he wants to be considered as the greatest player of all time, uh, he's got to win, maybe a couple more titles, at least one more title. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how you rate players, Howard. In terms of, I, I always get a kick out of it when people say, "Well, LeBron, he's the greatest player of all time." I said, "Well, what's your metric? Why do you say that?" Well, he's got he's got titles. Well, no, he doesn't have as many as Magic or 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 Russell or or Jordan or anybody well he scored the most points said, no he hasn't scored the most points Green has the most points and he's got six championships you know is it the eye test well he looks great today but you should have seen Jordan so what what is the metric for the greatest player of all time I, I would say if he got to six championships you know with three or four different teams that that's, that's a metric and becomes the leading scorer of all time
0: but until he does that I'm going to wait and see yeah, well, then, then you got to give Robert Ory the best of all time because he won what seven titles? <laughs> yeah, but not the driving force yeah. on the team. I mean, yeah. Steve Kerr, I think, has five titles yeah. also,
2: and uh, those two guys were part of the others for their teams. But you're talking about guys that were the major domos on their team: Russell, uh, Magic, uh, Jordan, Berg, all those guys. Uh, they were the man or the men, and. Uh,
0: LeBron has a chance to get there. He he, he still has some years left. Can he do it? We'll see. I walked in before the pandemic. I walked into my local pub, and a bunch of my friends were in there, and the argument was, who's the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? I said, this is a stupid argument. Michael Jordan was the best of his time. LeBron James is the best of his time. It's two different eras, two different sets of rules, two different styles of play. I I, I don't – look – most people would say Michael Jordan's the GOAT, greatest of all time. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty damn good, Howard. Huh? I mean, he, six
2: championships, six finals MVPs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Jordan, I, I think, still still kind of holds it. You know, I think people overlook Kareem also. Uh, you know, the six championships with Kareem, couple different teams, all-time leading scorer, uh, most devastating... Uh, weapon of all time, the skyhook. Uh, I, I think people tend to overlook Kareem and will and Russell. You know, if you want to say championships, you go with Bill Russell. I remember when that used to be the measuring stick, who's got the most championships right. to go. Right. But somehow people just forget that Bill Russell, you know, won 11 of 13. He probably would have won 12 of 13 had He not sprained his ankle in 1958 when they lost to the Hawks.
0: But, no, you're right. Uh-huh. You're right. You know, it's, it's a fascinating argument in the sport of basketball. Who's the greatest of all time? Look, I, uh, like I look at the, I look at what's going on now and say, what's the biggest disappointment of these playoffs? Is it Milwaukee getting knocked out? No, it's the Clippers getting knocked out by the Nuggets because everybody and everybody thought it was Clippers, Lakers, Western final, no question about it. Milwaukee was going to the Eastern final against Toronto or Boston. Uh, and every guess what i don't know if the pandemic and the and the bubble have anything to do with it all i know is that i've seen a great series with uh boston and toronto i'm gonna see a great series by the time it's done with boston and miami and and if the nuggets can get a win in game three uh you know this thing i don't want this thing to end i'll be honest with you chris and i have no horse in the race The basketball has been fantastic and i
2: I give a shout-out to the NBA. They've done a terrific job in putting together the bubble. Uh, I I think the way way they've organized the games and the courts and the virtual fans and the crowd noise has been brilliant. You look at the other sports, they're just really struggling, uh, you know, without the fans, with the empty stadiums. And I just think the NBA has, has done it right. It's really fun to watch uh and i I think going ahead the interesting thing for next year and i think we talked about this uh on your show last week howard is okay so say the season ends they crown a champion then what happens do you know if the season starts up in december or january do they go back to the bubble are there two bubbles for east and west or do they try to play the games in the arenas and and then and then travel it's going to be uh it's going to be fascinating
0: to watch and, and see how the NBA plots this out. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, right now I would say they're not going to start until January. Uh, my guess is that they, go, they're going to be a bubble. I don't think they're, going to, they're at that point now. I mean, I watched the, uh, the Dallas Cowboys' tremendous come from behind win last night, and they had 18,000 people, I think, at the stadium in Dallas, which is surprising me because Jerry Jones said he wasn't going to sell tickets for the first two games. I, I guess uh, his pocket started to itch a little bit. Well, I tell you what, I, I you know, I kind of feel I might be the only one in America who feels for the owners a bit. I mean, when you're
2: used to having eighty to hundred thousand people in your stadium or whatever that whatever Dallas stadium holds, I mean, you just think, well, how can we spread it out? Have 15 one night, have have twenty five the next time, and, and space it out a little bit. Have everybody wear masks if they're comfortable going to the game. You can even take temperatures coming into the the stadiums. I think. You know, do that little temperature scan, and if you're above 100, you don't get in. But, uh, uh, boy, what a fantastic finish to that Cowboys game. I've never seen an onside kick behave quite like that one did last night. Yeah. Squirming on the ground like a reptile right uh, (laughs) 10 yards, and then Dallas pouncing on it. Uh, One of the craziest plays uh,
0: that I've ever seen. Well, it's, you know, you're talking before about Denver getting off slowly and playing better in the second half. You know, the Cowboys who turned the ball over four times in the first half, and they were down 20 in the first <laughs> half. But Dak Prescott uh, sent the message to Jerry Jones, hey, this is who I am. You might want to think about paying me a little bit here. Well,
2: I, I, I would take Jerry's point on this. Yeah, Dak is a good quarterback, but he's not – He's not a top three quarterback in, in
0: in the NFL. No, and I wouldn't pay him like a top three quarterback in the NFL. I think you
2: just hamstring yourself if you've got Aaron Rodgers or you got Mahomes, uh, you got one of those guys that absolutely elite. Then you pay him that big money. But I wouldn't do it for I wouldn't do it for Dak Prescott. I'm just not quite as high on him. Is he good? Yeah. But you look at the Cowboys; they lost. Didn't they lose the first game? They lost their first
0: game. They probably should have lost yesterday. Right. And if Dak Prescott is so great, like, what's going on? No, lead your team. fair point. Um, Aaron, uh, Matt Ryan loses two games in a row, each of which he threw four touchdown passes. And I'm saying to myself, poor Matt Ryan. I mean, he's he's got the goods. And Atlanta leads by 15 with five minutes to go in the game. That's game, set, and match. Well, not yesterday. Yeah, no lead is ever safe in the NFL, huh? Well, yeah, same thing was, in the NBA. Uh, Look at the NBA. What I mean? Yeah, a fabulous comeback for the Cowboys,
2: but a tremendous, uh, well, I'd say, gag by the Atlanta Falcons. Hey, Chris. And, uh, I love, I love the comeback story. You know, sometimes when my partner uh, Scott Hastings and I are, are doing a game, and regular season game, and the Nuggets would be up by twenty-five, and the other team would make a run and get it down to ten, and My partner's bemoaning the fact, hey, we're blowing the lead or it's going down the drain. I said, you know, the other team's pretty good, too. You know, the other NBA team is fine uh, that they they can come back, you know, and we win by 10. So I think comebacks in the NBA are becoming uh, more commonplace, and particularly in the bubble when there's no home court advantage. If you're not on the road in the bubble, you've got a chance to
0: win any game. 1993 I did a uh, a wild card playoff game in the N- in the uh, NFL with Pat Hayden Buffalo and Houston and to start the third quarter Buffalo uh, Houston intercepted Buffalo for a pick six to go up 35 to 3 and the greatest comeback of all time ensued as Buffalo came from behind won the game in overtime ever since then there is no such thing as a safe lead not until the final horn If I remember, you were calling that, and and you predicted a a comeback, didn't you? No, I just said, I I just made the. I said, Pat, here's the only thing I'm concerned about: nobody's leaving. (laughs) Yes, yeah, a lot of people missed a a great finish in that one. Well, you know Um, what's interesting, Chris? I in that game, two they have become friends of mine since Warren Moon and James Lofton. Warren Moon was the quarterback of the Houston team, and I said. Why the heck did you guys run the ball in the second half? He said that wasn't our game. If you remember, we had they had what was known as the red gun, and so they would throw the ball on every down, and they had no running game to speak of, and, and you know that, that cost them.
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I I met James Lofton interestingly in an XFL interview. He and I were put together to audition uh, for the XFL the the first rendition, mm-hmm. and
0: uh, we had to do a uh, a call of the, the previous year's
2: game, and it was the uh, the Rams and uh, God, who was it? Was it New England? It was the one where the the game ended on the one yard line.
0: James, I've worked probably 30 games with James over the course of my life. Number one, he's one of the greatest guys I've ever been around. Number two, uh, he he sees the game through the players' eyes and translates it to the listeners and the viewers' ears and eyes. He has a, a tremendous well, a tremendous intellect. Hey, he went to Stanford, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's, that's pretty good school. Uh, but James had the ability to see things. That the average fan didn't see, and he made you aware of certain things, and that's what made him very good. And he's highly thought of right now, you know, on the on the CBS lineup. Yeah, he was. He was. He
2: was almost too professional uh, for the XFL at that particular time. Uh, I remember when I when I met Vince McMahon. You know, they're looking for a little offbeat uh, to start that league, and maybe they thought I was, and, and he wasn't. But I, I have to tell you that that year in the XFL was one of the most fun uh, I've ever had. It was r- really interesting to be part of a of a startup, and I I wish that had a uh, uh, proceeded and, and and done well. And that'd be interesting to see if the Rocks can get the the third
0: incarnation of the XFL going next season. I think the game you were talking about before was actually Tennessee and the and the. Uh, and the uh, Patriots on the, in the Super Bowl as when Steve McNair was playing for Tennessee and they did finish on the one-yard line. You're right. Well, there
2: have been some uh, crazy finishes where you're euphoric at the end and you're disappointed, which brings us back to the Denver Nuggets. Uh, it's interesting that they'll have uh, you know just a day to prepare and to get, get back into it. And uh, the big question is, how do they come out? How do they come out? How do they react? And I think Mike Malone, uh, the big thing for him is, is who, does he, who does he play? Uh, P.J. Dozier got some time. Do they play Porter more? Uh, what about Plumley? What
0: about playing two bigs at the same time? Uh, those are all questions he's going to have to figure out. Yep, there's no question. It's about matching the intensity. It's always about that. Hey, Chris, appreciate your time. Uh, hopefully the series continues because I love having these chats with you. So enjoy your day and stay safe. Well, Howard, when the uh, when the Nuggets put on the rents and make their comeback, uh, give me another call. Uh, <laughs> you got it, and we'll, and we'll chat again. You got it, Chris. Thanks for your time. He is Chris Marlow, the television voice of the Denver Nuggets. I mean, you got to like, not like, you got to love the Lakers' chances. I mean, let, let's be honest about it. Um, uh, they, the, the Lakers are good for a particular reason. They've got two superstars. And two superstars makes all the difference in the world. You know, most teams have two stars. The Nuggets certainly have w- with, uh, you know, with, with Jokic and Murray. Uh, and then you got got uh, Kawhi and Paul George with the Clippers. A lot of teams have two superstars. How you utilize them. Makes all the difference in the world. Going to talk uh, some Dallas Cowboys football now with Todd Archer. He is from the Dallas Morning News. <clears throat> Hello? Oh, Todd. It's Howard David. Hey, Howard. How are you doing? So you see any good football games lately? <laughs> a couple. <laughs> well, last night, yesterday's game wasn't a good game. It was an exciting game. Uh, that that's a fair point. four four cowboy turnovers in the first half, four fumbles, down twenty in the first half. I mean, we're getting ready to shovel the dirt on them, right? Uh, yeah, it was shovelled.
1: No question. And then and then Atlanta happened. I think if it was any other team maybe they would have lost, but Atlanta
0: seems to be doing this uh, doing this a bunch, right? Well, yeah, uh, two weeks in a row, uh, Matt Ryan's thrown four touchdown passes and he's got two losses to show for it. Yeah. I mean, right. what? What? When did you know, kind of kind of get a feeling that something was in the air here?
1: Honestly, I, it was probably not until they got the onside kick. To be honest with you, uh, because the, the the way that that it had been going, you just expected something bad to happen because I, I didn't understand the decision to go for two when you're down nine. Um, uh Because you needed to have a, a another ball, you needed to have another possession, and they kind of got lucky. Once they, once they recovered the onside kick, I started writing my Cowboys win story that needed to be in right at the end of the game. I, I it, it was. We you covered? Were you doing the Dolphins on the uh, when they lost to the Jets on the Monday night game? Yes. So I obviously covered that one too. Uh, that one I think it, we had like seven stories written. And it was similar to that, right? I mean, it was it was the same kind of comeback. But I didn't think
0: – it wasn't until they got the onside kick that I think they would come back. That was a weird onside kick, too. I mean, I think that, that ball just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. And good for the Cowboys. They recovered it. But, uh, I mean, you shouldn't even be in that situation if you're Atlanta, right?
1: Right. And here's the deal. That, that onside kick will never be recovered again because every special teams coach is telling his players – Jump on the ball. It's that slow. Don't, it's like a, they were like a third baseman waiting for the bunt to go foul and it never went foul. They they could have just jumped on it and they just waited and waited and waited. I, I don't think you'll see that one work again. You better, they better come up with something else uh, to, if you want to see an onside kick work again. And look, our, our stat people at ESPN came up with this one. They said last year of the four onside kick attempts in the fourth quarter, only six of 56. Had been recovered, hmm. so the so the odds were not in the Cowboys' favor.
0: Um, I would say that Dak Prescott's numbers are, are astounding: 450 yards, one throwing touchdown, but he rushed for three touchdowns, so proving that you know he can get it done both ways. Uh, but to be fair, and all the conversation about Dak Prescott and his contract and so on, uh, would you put Dak Prescott? in the top three or four quarterbacks in the league. Hmm. Top three
1: or four is awful high. I don't don't know if I'd go top three or four yet because that has to be reserved in my mind for guys that have won Super Bowls and he's got one playoff win. So now is he right below those guys? I'll put him right below those guys. And, and, uh, you know, uh, we'll we'll see what's going to happen after this season with the contract, uh, obviously. But I don't know. Top three or four, I can't go there yet. Because it 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 all these guys, quarterbacks and Dak said it. You're judged by wins, and he's won much in the regular season. I'm not taking that away from him, but you're judged by really by what you do in the postseason. So that that, they do something, they get to the postseason, they win in the postseason. Then he makes that jump in the top three, four. But is he five, six, seven,
0: eight? That's still a pretty good place to be. Look, I mean, based on on championships and Tom Brady's the, the greatest quarterback of all time. But is he one of the greatest quarterbacks of this time, taking all into account his age and so on? Who is the number one quarterback in the league? Is it Russell Wilson? Uh, uh, Russell Wilson, Pat Mahomes—they're they're, they're one and two, uh, right? I mean, and I don't know how you'd have—I'd probably put uh, Mahomes at at one right now, right? And, and
1: but Wilson, what we've seen from him in the first two games uh, of of this season. Heck, man, you he can make the argument for, for him as well. Lamar Jackson, I, I think he'd have to be, he's in that conversation too. So that's three right there. Aaron Rodgers is off to an unbelievable start. Mm-hmm. Would he be four? You know, so again, if we're adding up where Dak would be, Um, I, I think, you know, let's, let's put him at five. And again, if you if people want to get mad at me for calling him the fifth best quarterback in the game
0: right now, well, I guess I'll live with that one. But about- the Who's what, the best guy. What about Drew Brees? Uh, you know,
1: I, I wasn't impressed with Drew in the opener, and I think his arm strength is uh, it's, it's a little bit I, – I wouldn't put Brady up there. I wouldn't put Brees up there. I just think at the moment with how they're doing it,
0: I don't know if they're what they were. But Aaron Rodgers is certainly in the conversation. Yeah, the way that he's played the first two
1: games, um, I, I you know, they scored 40 points. in in both games so far Um, you know obviously Aaron Jones went off yesterday but um, you know it's looking like Aaron Rodgers is looking like he's like he did a few years ago not the guy that many
0: people thought were on the decline isn't it amazing that when the Packers drafted Love everybody started saying well he's the quarterback of the future they started shoveling dirt on Aaron Rodgers and I went whoa wait a minute this guy's got at least two or three good years left in him I think well uh, yeah and it
1: goes to the I'm sure if we could rewind the clock or find the tape or read some old stories, when the Packers drafted Rodgers in the first round in 2005, people were probably saying the same thing about Favre and, and why, let's oh, not, not bury Brett Favre yet. And, you know, Favre was a, a guy who took him to, what they went to the conference title game in 2007, I know, um, but he still had a few good years left in him, whether it was in Green Bay or,
0: I guess, Minnesota. He took him to the conference title game as well well uh, you know the one thing i came away with yesterday aside from the obvious in the game and the come from behind win by the cowboys which was tremendous and the collapse by the falcons but you don't got to go you have to go back only to super bowl 50 to see the falcons blow a lead of uh substantial lead against new england before they lost <laughs> they've had some, some
1: heartbreaking losses for sure and uh, i was just about to go look up on uh, the, the Game Pass to watch the TV. Copy again. And I had somebody tell me, "Hey, go look and find out what the score was when Arthur Blank made his way to the field yesterday." <laughs> I know he was on the field for the Super Bowl, and we saw what happened. He might want to stay in, stay in the
0: booth, uh, <laughs> stay in his owner suite, and not go down on the field until the game's actually over. Yeah, but the one thing I did come away with yesterday, amongst a lot of things, was the Cowboys have themselves weapons. I mean, uh, Ezekiel Elliott did not have a great game yesterday. He had a good game. He had 89 yards. But it took him 22 carries. But C.D. Lamb has fit right in to go along with Cooper and Schultz. You got yourself a nice wide receiver core there. Well, yeah, and Michael Gallup had a big catch in that comeback too,
1: a 38-yarder down the sideline. Uh, You you mentioned Lamb. He had the big catch to set up the game-winning kick. might have got away with a little shove there, a 24-yarder from Dak. And then Cooper had the big one in, a 58-yard grab. And you mentioned Schultz. This is a dude that had 14 catches entering the game for his career, taking over for Blake Trower when he got hurt in week one, goes nine for 88 in the touchdown. He lost a fumble, too. He was one of those guys that fumbled in the first quarter. So um, they, they definitely have some weapons. And you know, Tony Pollard is a guy really didn't get much work, but he's another guy that I think if they get the ball to him in space, you, you, you're right. I mean, I don't know. I think the only way that the Cowboys slow themselves slow, get slowed down in slowing themselves down, either with mistakes or
0: offensive line issues, which they seem to have right now with Tyron Smith and Leo Collins-Hurt. Well, uh, and also, uh, Ezekiel Elliott fumbled the ball twice yesterday. He lost one of those fumbles. But defensively, Todd, uh, we we'll talked talk with Todd Archer of the Dallas Morning News. Defensively, I mean, they only they sacked the quarterback once. The defense has got to be, uh, I don't know if it's upgraded enough. I don't know if they can survive or they just simply have to try to outscore people? I think
1: it's got to be the latter. Uh, I think it's you have to try and outscore people until they can figure something out. Um, y- you know, you don't want to... I'm not going to use the excuse, well, it's a new coordinator. They didn't have an offseason. No team had an offseason. And there are other teams that have new coordinators that are not off to this slow start. What is surprising to me uh, is the pass rush and the lack of the pass rush. And what we thought the Cowboys were going to be from DeMarcus Lawrence and Everson Griffin, uh, Alden Smith being being back. Now, he's played well in his first two games after a four-year absence A Tyrone Crawford. But if two sacks in two games, it, we knew the Cowboys secondary was going to be a bit of an issue because of unknowns back there. You thought the front seven, and specifically the defensive line, would bring, pre- would bring pressure, and they've not so far. That's got to be fixed here in a hurry if the Cowboys want to, Not have to score forty every week to win.
0: Well, is Mike Nolan coming under under fire here, or is that premature? I think it's premature, and some of it is
1: what I said that I didn't want to give the out of. Hey, you had no off season, but again, this is a vastly different defense than what the Cowboys ran under Rod Marinelli for six, seven years. Uh, This is there's more disguise, they're doing more things, so there's going to be busts and mistakes. And then you add in the fact Leighton Van Esch is out with a broken collarbone. Sean Lee's not playing uh, at all because of sports hernia surgery. Uh, Cheeto Bouzier is now banged up. Lawrence is a little banged up. You know, you add all those things up, and, and I, I, I guess now I'm giving them excuses, and I didn't want to. But uh, he's not under fire yet. But look, they better be better because you look at the who they, the, some of the quarterbacks that they play when they when they're coming up here. I mean. The,
0: they're going to be tested, and they're going to be tested next week with the guy we talked about earlier, Russell Wilson. Yeah, no, that's that, that's quite correct. What's the um, y- your observations on the difference between the way McCarthy does things and the way Garrett did things? Um, so
1: McCarthy will, is willing to take more chances uh, than, than Jason Garrett would. Now, Jason did go for it on fourth down quite a bit, and in some un- unorthodox. Uh, positions but uh, the narrative on him was built so even when he did it no one wanted to give him any credit for it when it worked um if you asked me this question after week one i would have said it doesn't look very much different it was an offense that looked bland uh it was decision making that was questioned and they can still even question some of the decision making in this win uh the first fake punt attempt okay i got you you're trying to as Parcells, you say, trying to give your team some impetus, give them some momentum, and that fell fell flat, didn't work. The second fake punt when it's fourth and five, even after the game, McCarthy said, "Yeah, that was a mistake. That was too far to go. We should have just punted it." And then, to me, again, I'm, analytics, sure, okay, tells you to go for it when you when you're down, go for two when you're down nine. I I don't understand that. Kick your kick your PAT, get it to eight and then you're not in a situation and then if you score again we have a chance to tie the game i you you, you, you get, they got lucky in my in my view and i know the analytics probably say something different but i think they got lucky and i think they got burned by it in week 1 when in the fourth quarter on fourth and 3 he didn't kick the tie- game tying field goal deep inside la territory so he's he's much more willing to play the analytical game uh, than i thought he
0: would be uh after two weeks, well, even you know the NFC East right now, uh, you can get two games behind and not be out of it. I mean, the host stands out right now. I mean, Nobody. not not yeah. Washington, certainly not the Giants, and, and the Eagles, frankly, a bit of disappointment. No question, and look, this is what we were saying last year with the Cowboys when you know they were in first place for a good portion of the deal, but they couldn't put
1: anybody away, and they they kept the Eagles around. And the Eagles caught me at the end uh, by, by beating up there in Philly late in the season. So th- this is not a good division. This is not the division that everybody remembers. Uh, certainly not the NFC South. It's certainly not the NFC West. Um, so for the Cowboys, you look at the issues in Washington. You look at the issues in, in New York, now Saquon Barkley out for the season. In Philadelphia, the defense is struggling and, and Wentz is struggling. Stack these wins together now, create some distance between everybody, and you can breathe a little easier. But I still wouldn't say the Eagles are dead yet because we've seen them come back far
0: too many times to rule them out. Uh, We're talking with Todd Archer of the Dallas Morning News. Um, The thing that struck me yesterday, and I don't know if it's just circumstance, uh, you know, irony, whatever you want to call it, but a lot of big-name players went down yesterday, starting with Nick Bosa in San Francisco out for the year. Saquon Barkley of the Giants, out for the year. Um, Drew Luck of the Denver Broncos, I don't know how long he's going to be out with a sprained AC, AC joint. But, I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo, I don't know how long he's out with a high ankle sprain. A lot of big-name players went down yesterday.
1: Yeah, and, you
0: know, you, you hear some rufflings about the
1: turf at MetLife
0: Stadium from yeah. some of the,
1: the Niners people that complaining about that had a bunch of guys go down, right? So, um Is this a result of an off-season where you didn't have a traditional workout program and everything was condensed once they came back? Um, To me, that would be more soft tissue injuries, hamstrings, groins, things like that. Uh, This is knees and and structural issues that probably happen every year but seem to stand out early in the season um, when – attention is focused
0: on this stuff, especially because of the lack of an off-season program. Yeah, and in San Francisco, they got to hang around for a week and play in MetLife Stadium again as they play the Giants. Yeah, they're
1: going down to uh, West Virginia, right? They're going
0: down to the Greenbrier, I think, and hanging out for a week. And, oh, too yeah, bad. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a tough life, I guess, right? Um, it, you know,
1: you lose you lose Boza, you lose Solomon Thomas, I don't know how long he's going to be out. I mean, the if you're looking at it from an NFC perspective, and and look, I think Shanahan might be one, among the best coaches in the league right now, uh, and I think he'll be able to figure it out. But that opens some things up when you look at the depths, in my view, of this of of that this side of the conference. That you know, Green Bay looks like they're going to be okay. I'm not counting out the Saints. Uh, you got Brady in Tampa. The Rams look like they may have figured something out. The Cardinals are surprising a little bit. Seattle looks strong. I mean, this is a this is a pretty fairly deep conference, but if you if San Francisco has these injuries that plague them and they lose starters and they can't rebound, then, then that certainly helps the other
0: team's chances of, of making some noise. Christian McCaffrey, I don't know how long he's out for. He said he was fine after the game. Uh, you know, We'll wait and see about that. Devontae Adams of the Packers, hamstring. Uh, it's unclear if he's going to miss significant time, but that would be a big loss.
1: Yeah, and again, Aaron Jones carried them yesterday, but we saw what what the Devonte Adams can do, and in the connection he and Aaron Rodgers have, and we won. You, we, a lot of people critique the Packers for not drafting a receiver or selecting one high to help out Aaron Rodgers. Now, if you don't have Adams, you're going to have to hope that some of these guys can raise their level of play, or, or hope Aaron Rodgers raises their level of play. When you're talking about. Uh, the guys that are remaining, so you know, like Valdez, Scanling, and Lazard, and, and, and these guys, um, it's it, it, that, that if that's a week's type of injury, then that's something that maybe you see the Packers change their style and mo to lean more on Aaron Jones
0: and, and that running game going forward. You mentioned um, Arizona. I mean, Murray had a strong day yesterday. Uh, I mean, I watched him. He. Looked, and, oh, they're playing Washington, so let's take things. Into consideration, and they got—I uh, don't know if it's considered a difficult game at home against Detroit this week, but we'll see. But how about Tyrod Taylor? He goes down, but I got news for you. Herbert impressed me. Yeah,
1: hey, and the one bad throw—they got the, the interception there. That when they were in scoring position, that ultimately cost them big. Because if you you get a field goal there, you make it. A th- I think it would have been a three-score game at that point. But yeah, no, he played well, and you, you hope Tyrod Taylor's fine, and, and this chest pain thing that they're still trying to figure out. Maybe it's related to the rib injury uh, that that he's had, but that's a little scary deal. But again, you know, the the Chargers drafted Herbert where they did because they want him to be the guy eventually. Maybe he speeds up that process a little bit, despite what Anthony Lynn says about when Tyrod's healthy, he's the guy. It's hard hard not to look at what the rookie did
0: yesterday and and be intrigued what he could do if he gets more practice time and playing time. Look, what we've seen the first two weeks uh, underscores the reality that the NFC West is the toughest division top to bottom. I mean, here's San Francisco. Uh, hopefully they don't lose Garoppolo for any amount of time. But if they do, it's a bit of an issue. But Arizona has started out quickly. So have the Rams uh, and and then the uh, Seahawks, of course. They hold on and beat New England. That was, a, that was a little scary thought yesterday. And great credit to their defense for stopping Newton on a critical play.
1: I guess I end week two, but almost end week two. It was – it was. whenever those teams play, man, go back to the Super Bowl a few years ago. Uh, obviously, where uh, Butler picks off – Malcolm Butler picks off the pass in the end zone to, to clinch the game. I mean, the Cowboys go there this week. I looked it up. Teams that play the Patriots the following week in their last 16 games are 4-12. and 12. So maybe that's some good news for the Cowboys because Seattle has not been a good place for them. I was just looking at Arizona's schedule. So you mentioned the Lions. Well, then they go to the Panthers, then they go to the Jets. I mean, they realistically could be 5-0 and sure. by the time they play the Cowboys on Monday Night Football uh, yeah. here in Arlington. So, I mean, they, 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 that's a team to start watching. And that probably – you thought they'd be improved in Kingsbury's second year, but maybe not
0: record-wise be that improved the, the way that they might be. Uh, yeah, you mentioned Monday Night Football. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of Monday Night Football. Um, when we saw uh, Keith Jackson and Cosell and Meredith and you think about, the, I mean that was like, it wasn't a football game, that was like an entertainment show because everybody was waiting for Cosell to give you the seven syllable words and Meredith, uh, folksy and all of that and Keith Jackson, the preeminent play-by-play guy at that time he was just holding the seat for Frank Gifford because Frank was, was still under contract at CBS and I believe he got the he got the gig bin the following season, but the whole thing then I mean it was it was a big deal. You look at look I did Monday Night Football for like seven seasons for CBS Radio. It was a big deal. Now the preeminent game at night is Sunday Night Football. They got better matchups.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I, but I think the games the last two years for Monday Night Football they've they've been exciting. They've had some really good games. You, you go back, you think of the Rams. Chiefs game that was supposed to be played in Mexico that moved back to the Coliseum that was
0: that game I can see what was that one Fifty-one forty-eight. yeah
1: somewhere along those lines but yeah, yeah no it, it, is, it is different and I think what else is different is you know growing up where I grew up we saw one game we didn't see all these games we had no Sunday ticket so you needed to see the halftime uh, Cosell do the highlights at halftime because you didn't know what happened if your team wasn't Playing so it, it, it so that 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 was a huge part of it I I think as well I think there's still a lot of not just because I work for ESPN but I, I still think there's a lot of cachet uh, on the Monday Night Football brand um, and, and you know I know players still talk about what it means to play in Monday Night Football but Sunday Night Football has become that too and in in some respects Thursday because they know everybody all their peers they're all watching the same game.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, look, it was all about money. Uh, when NBC got the contract, they paid a ton of money, and, and they dictated the matchups. And so from that standpoint, I understand. But, you know, being involved with the, with covering the Cowboys now, I mean, the Dallas Cowboys were the one of the featured teams on Monday night forever. Yeah, and, and they'll got,
1: they have their game uh, coming up against... I think it's the Cardinals on the uh, October 19th. That'll be there one time on Monday Night Football. And one thing I know Jerry has always talked about is the Cowboys are the most watched franchise in professional sports when it comes to TV ratings. So wherever the Cowboys play on CBS, on Fox, uh, ESPN, NDC, NFL Network, slash um, Yahoo. Yeah, I think that's the digital rights, right? Right. Uh, the, the Cowboys bring ratings. So, um, you know, it, it's – the, the star, the star, brings out the all the fans of the team, and then all the
0: people who want to see the Cowboys lose. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right, uh, and and a lot of it has to do with Jerry Jones, right? I mean, people, for the most people, they look at Jerry Jones, and they don't look. I met Jerry uh, when Wade Phillips was coaching the Cowboys. He introduced me to Jerry on the field before a game. I had never met Jerry Jones before, and we talked a little bit, and I asked him a bunch of questions, and and so on. And finally, after we were standing there for about 15 minutes, I said, Jerry, i got to ask you a question. Do you, uh, do you feel that you have, amongst the average football fan, more enemies than friends? He goes, oh, yeah. Everybody wants to see us lose. And I said, why do you think that is? He said, because they don't like me. And I said, yeah, but you don't play. <laughs> I said, is it because you're so visible? Would that be it? He goes, you're right, yes. And I said, "Well, how do you feel about that?" He goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, you do a radio show, you're in the, you're, uh, you, you, talk to the media after every game, and no other owner does that, so that kind of sets you apart, and you're comfortable with that, right?" He goes, "Yeah, okay." So now he walks away. He comes back about, I don't know, half an hour later. He walks back near me, and I'm standing there talking to, um, oh, I don't remember somebody else, and. Person asked me, uh, no, asked Jerry, Did you, you have you met Howard David? He goes, Oh, yeah. He said, He asked me a question before I gave him a book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's Howard, one of the things that's that's
1: bad about the pandemic well, among the well, like minor things that's bad about the pandemic and the rules for us, anyway, is there's no access to Jerry after a game outside the locker room, so we could only imagine what he would have said after a, a, a win like. Uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, with how the Cowboys pulled that off, we, he still might be talking outside the
0: locker room. Almost, what are we at? 18 hours later. You know, you know. To be fair, uh, I go back a long time with Jason Garrett. When I first started in broadcasting, I was doing Princeton football, and when Jason transferred from Columbia to Princeton, I called the games when he and his two brothers, Judd and uh, John, were teammates, and they ran a, a style of offense that they learned from their old man that set them apart with every other Ivy League school, so they were more sophisticated. So we became friendly, and I talked to Jason a lot and so on. So when he um, when he left Dallas, I talked to him on the phone, and I said, do you feel like uh, you were treated unfairly? He goes, no. I said, do you feel like, um, that? You, did you ever const- constantly look at that Jerry was looking over your shoulder? He goes, no. He says, look, let me explain this to you. Jerry Jones did not treat me unfairly, and I have no complaints with the way things went. We needed to win more; that's on me. And he took the, you know, he took the high road, and I, I respect him for that. Yeah, I mean, Jerry. No one wants to believe this,
1: and I've been covering this team since two thousand three. The head coach is the most, most powerful person in the organization. The head coach gets what he wants. And the example I always come back to is: Chan Gailey didn't want Randy Moss. The Cowboys didn't draft Randy Moss. I mean, this is, you know, Parcells, okay, he didn't want Terrell Owens. Well, guess what else happened? Larry Allen got released, too. Do you think Jerry wanted to get rid of Larry Allen? No, but they got rid of Larry Allen, so they they played their game. Wade Phillips got to do what he wanted to do. Jason Garrett had the juice to do what he wanted to do. No one wants to ever believe this. Hmm. They think Jerry just makes these decisions
0: willy-nilly That's just him picking this stuff and doing it, where he actually listens more than then people want to think. You know, people should know this. They don't because they have a preconceived notion of who Jerry Jones is. It might have been true
1: earlier now. I mean, you know, back in the Switzer time and when Jerry was really trying to get that Super Bowl win after the Jimmy debacle and when they split up. But, I, I mean, Jerry wanted Johnny Manziel in 2014. They drafted Zach Martin. I, right? like there's You know, there, there's countless examples. They, they don't go out and make the big play for the highest-priced free agent anymore, they, they they keep their powder dry, as he likes to say, and they spend it on their own players that they they, they draft and want to know more about, so they're not wasting money. So yeah, there, there's there's countless examples of Jerry. He's not the GM like Bill Polian was the GM. Uh, he's not breaking down film and studying it all, but he's not a guy who's
0: not listening to the people around him. Todd Archer of the Dallas Morning News, uh, Monday night, uh, tonight it's New Orleans and Vegas, w- which would be kind of cool, uh, you know, I still can't get into Las Vegas Raiders, but that aside, next Monday night, Kansas City at Baltimore, whoa, is that going to be an interesting game? Uh, no question, I mean, they, we talked about the two
1: quarterbacks here at the beginning, and, and Mahomes and Jackson, if they're one, two, or three, however you want to look at it, um, you, you know, you the two best teams in the AFC for sure, if not the league, um, you know, that, that's, that's one of those, that's one of those games that, that's appointment viewing, right? I mean, you, you know, this better than anybody this is, you, you want to see these teams play. You want to see those quarterbacks play for sure. And you know, that, that, that game could go a long way to determine who's going to have home field advantage provided things play out the way we think it's going to play out after two
0: games yeah no question about it and this is also an interesting week other places I mean Tampa Bay's at Denver Uh, Denver may not be very much but everybody's paying attention to Tom Brady you know that uh you you got Dallas playing Seattle got Green Bay at New Orleans in the Sunday night game and of course Kansas City Baltimore Uh, this is going to be an interesting week in the NFL and it's interesting to me Todd and you follow the NFL day in and day out But uh, I'm covering basketball. I'm watching baseball. But the NFL's back, baby, and everybody's watching them. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the ratings might not be as high as they had been, but the percentage of eyeballs watching it is still far greater than anything else. No doubt about it. Hey, Todd, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it, it, uh, and stay safe. Will do. Thanks, Howard. I appreciate it. It's Todd Archer, you know, the Dallas Morning News. He's got a fun beat. And you get to watch the most visible team in the National Football League. Make no mistake about it. You know, make no mistake about it. The most visible team in the National Football League is the Dallas Cowboys. Mark it down. Let's talk a little U.S. Open golf as we uh, welcome in Mark Canazero of the New York Post. Hopefully, Marquette. Here he is. Marquette zero. Oh, Mark, it's Howard David. Hey, Howard, how you doing? We are live and ready to talk about a guy that says he's going to change the way we watch golf. What's well, <laughs> you know he doing? Is he changing the way golf is played now with the way he... The man averaged 325 yards off his tee shot. Are you kidding me? I know. Here, one tee shot. I, I and watching the telecast, three eighty. I think. Are they checking to see if he's got hair on his hands? On number nine. Yeah. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I mean, he's doing things that we've never seen before. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's it's, it's unbelievable. Well, describe. You 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 were there for four days plus. Uh, he only hit twenty three out of fifty six fairways. Uh, we already talked about the length, but uh, I, I'm uh, I'm impressed with uh, the fact that he's the only guy to be under par after four days of play. You're, I'm sorry, you're impressed with what? I said I'm impressed with the fact he's the only guy to be under par after oh, four yeah, days yeah. of play. You know, I mean, it's
2: just, uh, he had his game plan, he stuck with it, and it worked.
0: What happened to Wolf yesterday? I think mean, he just, you know, he,
2: he, he didn't hit as well as he had been hitting it. And uh, he got a couple bad breaks around the turn. Um, caught a bad lie uh, on 10, the par 3. Um, had a ball sp- kind of spin back off a false front. I want to say on 11 or 12. Uh, you know, so it just kind of, he, I think, you know, once he fell behind, I think he was pressing a little bit, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of got that feeling, Mark. Well, I've played the, the the two courses up there at Wingfoot. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur. I mean, I shot eighty five up there one day, and I was I did cartwheels. <laughs> Those fairways yeah. are so narrow. And they yeah, had the a roughest. It's a it's a, a brutal it's a brutal place. You get that? Well, it seemed like everybody was talking about the difficulty. I mean, Justin Thomas had a rough day yesterday. Uh, a lot of players had a rough day yesterday. Uh, they all had rough days. They had a rough week, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> did you play the course before the tournament? I didn't. I played it last year. Um, I did not have a little media um, invite. Excuse me, a little
2: media invite. i few weeks ago, and I was not in town, so I was not able to play it like right before, unfortunately. But uh, um, I, 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 was, I played it, like I said, I played it last, when we've the tournament, was going to be in June. I
0: probably played it, I played it in early spring, I guess. Harris English had a problem yesterday. He hit his tee shot and there were a bunch of uh, people around and nobody could find his ball. Uh, did he have a legitimate complaint? I think he did. I mean, he had all these USGA, you know, volunteers who were supposed to be spotting the
2: ball and, uh, and you know, and nobody found it. I, I, you know, a big, you either weren't paying attention, or uh, I mean, I, I think it's inexcusable. When you have all those volunteers there, that, whose job is is to spot a ball, and it's not like you hit it off the reservation. You just hit it. You hit it a little bit left, and clipped a tree, and you know, you know, this is one of the leaders of the U.S. Open. You know, you can't be losing a ball. I just, you know, again, not, you know,
0: he didn't hit it straight, but he he should have been lost. Let's put it that way. Um, the guy that I'm waiting to break through is Hideki Matsuyama. Shoot 78 yesterday after playing pretty well the first three days. What happened to him yesterday? I just don't think Hideki
2: has proven himself to be a, you know, a final-round player under the heat. You know, I mean, he's won a couple of big tournaments, of course, but uh, um, I just don't – I don't know. I, you know, he's won Memorial, and, and – and, uh, but I, I don't know. I just – I have not really seen him
0: seize the moment, if, if you will, you know. Um, Dustin Johnson came into this tournament. Uh, most people thought he this this course was great for him. He started out a little shaky in round one, but he was very consistent at that. Three rounds of seventy. Yeah, you know what? He did not putt
2: well this week, and uh, that hurt him. You know, he was he was. Uh, that was his one lament when the tournament was over. Or was he just he just never really putted the way he wanted to put? Um, so, you know, I, I, it's funny. I mean, you know, he didn't play that great, but he was still still up in the top ten or whatever he finished.
0: So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, he finished. He, you know, he
2: didn't play terribly. Let's put it that way. He just didn't. You know, he
0: just his putting was off. Yeah, he finished tied for fifth. And the other question mark. I mean, after an opening. Um, Round of, I want to say, 65, Justin Thomas just fell apart. Yeah, you know, I, and that
2: 65 was a little bit um, deceiving. I walked with him on, on Thursday, and he he got a lot of good breaks. He got a lot of good lies on some, on some shots that could have been in worse places, and I think that ended up catching up to him a little bit because he – you know, he, he was really not... I think he was swinging great
0: as the week went on, and, and I think it just caught up for him a little, caught up for him a little bit. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit more about Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, uh, apparently they worked out some kind of a thing where they had a video of uh, maybe a, a Zoom thing with his mother and father, and he got very emotional as they, they, they were there to, you know, to, to congratulate him and so on. Is he the kind of a player... That can take hold of the PGA Tour and be a dominant performer. You know, it's funny. I, it's funny you, you
2: mentioned that because I got an email from a, a reader that I just read a couple of hours ago, and it is true. When these guys win a big tournament, we in the media jump. Oh, this guy's going to dominate. You know, he's not going to. You know, it's so cyclical. And you know, I mean, again, you know. Kept because he didn't play in the U.S. Open because he's had some knee problems and he's had, had some physical issues. You know, there was a period of time where we didn't think that guy was going to lose a tournament again, and you know, he's kind of fallen off a little bit. A few years ago, with Dustin Johnson, we didn't think he was ever going to lose again, and now he's back to number one again. And, and you know, he was the odds-on favorite to you know to win in uh, at Wingfoot, and it didn't work out. So, do I think that? that, that Chambeau is gonna go and win the next three majors or something like that. I no, I don't because I just think these guys are all so good that they have their moments, they're all you know, they're they get they get hot. The one thing I will say is which is fascinating to me, and it's kind of actually what I'm writing for tomorrow's New York Post, is when you look at what Dustin I'm sorry, what what Bryson D. did to Wingfoot, Foot, which is obviously as we just mentioned, narrow fairways, you know, high rough tree line Dog legs. What is he going to do with Augusta? There's no, there's really not a lot of trouble in Augusta, right? I mean, there's no rough fairways are generous and wide. If you do hit it in the trees, you can punch out, you know, and, and, and advance it pretty well. And I mean, you know, if he, I, I am fascinated to see what how he's going to how his new game and his new his new physique and and length is going to translate. At Augusta, where you can—it's a bomber's paradise. You can bomb it all over the place there. So I mean, it's—it's it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that he could dominate at Augusta. And the, the beauty of that is, there's
0: two there's two Masters in the next six months, starting in November. Uh, Mark Canizzaro, the New York Post, who covers golf uh, and has been at all the majors, uh, look, this is 2020. We've uh, everybody gets very suspicious, and here's a guy who's gained 40 pounds is bulked up. He's hitting the ball into orbit. And the obvious question is, is there anything illegal about anything he's doing? I don't... uh, If if you're asking me what I think, I don't think so. Um,
2: I think this guy is a driven, hard-working guy. Um, You know, he he does take these supplements, or, you know, he's got these shakes that he drinks and all that stuff. But, um, I don't know. I mean, listen, it has been a remarkable transformation to his body. Uh, In the last year, a little under a year. I mean, in October, October, he basically told reporters at the Las Vegas tournament that I'm going to come back next year, look completely different, hit the ball up further. So he called it out, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just, if you look at, you know, listen. How do any of us really know? I mean, unless you're testing all the time, right? You know. So I'm not trying to be naive about this, but I'm just, I'm just going by my observations. I saw a guy that was that was hitting balls till dark, almost at wing foot, you know, trying to figure it out, you know, trying to, trying to get the swing perfect. You know, working on he was working on his wedges on Thursday night um, with a different ball flight and a different trajectory because uh, he, he was anticipating the cold weather coming in on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, which he did, you know, and he wanted to be prepared for that. He was hitting balls under the lights on Saturday night, you know, because he didn't like the way he was hitting his driver in his third round on Saturday. So this is a guy that doesn't seem to be that's taking shortcuts. He just seems to be a guy that's obsessively driven to be perfect. And, uh, you know, he was as close to perfect as you can get in this one week, you know, at wing foot.
0: Mark, uh, I saw I read in, in your article about the fact that all of his irons are the same length. Uh, what makes that so unusual? Well, do you know anybody else that does it? No, <laughs> you know? no. I mean, you know, it's, it's
2: something, it's fun. It's funny, it's something he wanted to do when he was younger, and I think his dad told him, no, you can't do that. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I think the philosophy behind it is, you know, you, you're taking the same swing. I don't know about you, I mean, I, I, I play like you play. I happen to be, irons are not my strength, but I feel a lot more comfortable with a pitching wedge, 9-iron, 8-iron in my hand, even a 7-iron, than I do a 5-iron or a 4-iron. Because I and I and I think subconsciously I'm swinging those irons differently, and they I think you know the four iron and five iron are harder to hit because they're a little bit longer, right? The shaft, and I think you know his philosophy was to try to hit
0: every iron the same, and uh, I guess it's been working pretty well. Yeah, is he? Uh, look, the key to to golf obviously is you know don't beat yourself, don't hit the ball into the rough and. And leave yourself. And the object is to hit as many fairways as you can. He didn't. He didn't hit a, a high percentage of fairways. But he's so strong that hitting the ball out of that deep rough was not a big as big a problem for him as it would be for the other players. But how would you evaluate him? How would you rate him as a putter? Well, it's, I mean, he was. He's a
2: fantastic putter, and it looks, which is bizarre, because it looks extremely mechanical and uncomfortable. It looks awkward. Uh, but he was number one in putting uh, in, in, at this tournament this week. I believe in, a, in the past year he's, number, he's been number one in putting with in ten, ten, foot, in ten foot and ten foot in putts. Um, so he, you know, what he did, Howard, when you think about it, and he referenced it too, uh, unsolicited. But what he did this week was he did everything that Phil Mickelson tried to do 14 years ago, wing foot. Right, um, and I know we spoke about. Nicholson uh, in a previous show, you know, Phil couldn't, was having trouble hitting fairways, so he's, his philosophy was, you know, what I'm going to bomb it as far as I can because I want a longer hitter, to work This is, at, you know, obviously I'm, I'm referencing the 2006 U.S. Open for our listeners. That <laughs> was foot the last time it was there, and his philosophy was, I know the rough is high and it's penal, but the further, the closer I can get to the greens, you know, if I'm not in the fairway, I can just I have a better chance of getting onto the greens with a nine iron or an eight iron or wedge than I would if I'm trying to lay up a little bit and, and miss a fairway and i got a fly iron in my hand. So that was completely what, what Bryson did. And, and, and he spoke to Phil prior to the tournament about that. And Phil basically said, look, he goes, I had the best short game of my life then. You know, and, you know, he was saying his was and obviously Mickelson's a short game wizard, but that's saying a lot, that he had the best short game of his life that week in 2006 and that's why Bryson was working like a madman on his wedges and whatnot because that was going to be his philosophy all along was to get it as far down there as he could even if it wasn't in the rough uh, if it wasn't in the fairway I should say and at least he'd have a shorter iron and just you know, play for the middle of the greens and give him some birdie putts and uh, it worked and then with Phil it worked for 71 holes and then he imploded on, on 72nd mm. hole obviously famously so um, that's really you know that's the true bomb and gouge philosophy that a lot of the purists in the game detest because it's not, you know, it's less nuanced and all that, but, you know, I would argue you may say it's less nuanced but you you still have to have a great short game, which I would argue is nuanced um, you know, to, to do what Bryson did this week, I mean, people think that this guy is a, you know a meathead that just pounds the ball three hundred and sixty yards every every. He has, there's so much more to his game, you know. Like we were just referencing, the, the putting and the short game. Uh, I mean, this guy is an absolute perfectionist in terms of uh, what he wants to do. Um, you know, frankly, I think to his detriment sometimes because it drives him crazy because he's trying to get. him I mean, so perfect. You, you know, you and I know as as golf junkies, there's no such
0: thing as perfection in golf. There just isn't, right? No, it's a game of perfection played by imperfect people. No question. And uh, so,
2: I mean, I think that's been a you know that's been an interesting thing that I think that Bryson has fought to some degree because he's tried to be perfect.
0: And you know, this week it all came together. It worked. You know, Mark, uh, when you when you watch baseball, uh, distance impresses people. All we see on the highlights at night is home run after home run after home run. Uh, In basketball, the three-point shot now is a dominant factor. In golf, distance means something. Uh, Do you think, and I don't know that anybody would admit it if it did, but here's a guy, you play with this guy as a pro, and I'm talking about the top name guys. You play with this guy. He's hitting the ball 30, 40, 50 yards in front of you. Isn't that intimidating?
2: scientist guy with, with all of his you know, gadgets on the range and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, the latest installment in this building of, of the great, one of the great golfers in the game has been to bulk up and, and add length. And, you
0: know, I'll be damned if it hasn't been working. I can't end the golf conversation without talking about Tiger Woods. He said, uh, and maybe I read it in your column, that he's uh, focused now on Augusta. That's not until November. And uh, now I don't know. I don't know. I've never been to Augusta in November. Uh, what's the weather like there? Actually, they say the weather is is a very very
2: similar in November down there as to the way it is in, in uh, April. Oh, is it
0: okay? There's some people. There's some people
2: that say it's probably about five degrees cooler on average. Um, but they there are some people that say that that's that's actually you know. The people that are playing Augusta, which is not me, unfortunately, uh, they say that that's like that time of year is the nicest time of year to play it. That's actually normally when they reopen, because you know they close as you, as I'm sure you know, uh, on Memorial Day each week and each year, and they don't open up until the fall. So November, is shortly after, they've already reopened the golf course, you
0: know, for the first season. So yeah, I I, I suspect that it's going to be in beautiful shape. Uh, again, getting back to Tiger Woods, he says he's focused on competing to defend his title and so on. It's a nice thought, and let's face it, he draws crowds. Uh, he didn't make the cut this this week. Uh, I'm sure that uh, his ego took a little bit of a shot, but that aside, realistically, I mean, th- th- what Tiger did last year was magnificent, and people are wondering if he can ever win again. Do you think he can? I, I'm starting to wonder that, to be honest with you,
1: after this week. Uh, You know, he looked like a
2: guy that was just hanging on all week. uh, You know, I'll say all week, the two days he played before he missed a cut. And he just wasn't doing anything outstanding, right? I mean, he was... I mean, I don't know how many birdies he had without looking at his card, but they weren't many. I mean, you know, you could count them on one hand and less. Uh, So he just struggled. and, And frankly... Since the tour restarted, it, you know, it said, you know, after the pandemic pause of three months in June, you know, he hasn't played that much. And uh, he opted not to play the first four events right out of the box um, and, you know, didn't come back till Memorial. And frankly, he just has not played very well. He hasn't done much of anything. And I don't know if it's because he just doesn't have enough tournament reps, which I always argue is a problem for him, but that's also something that he has to manage with his back. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I certainly drove out of winged foot on, on Friday night after after finishing writing, wondering if he's going to win again at all because, you know, he just seems to have lost those superpowers that made him, you know, the legend that he is. And everybody's caught up to him. I mean, you know, he's you know he, he raised the level of the game, and now – you I mean, listen, Bryson DeChambeau is a perfect example. Bryson DeChambeau has been on record saying that – you know, he modeled himself after Tiger when he saw Tiger win the Grand Slam, and you know, he wanted to do things like Tiger. You know, and, and you know, the tour is filled with, with people like that. You know, Shockley, all these young guys. You know, um, down the line. So, and they've all, you know, they've all, they're all fit. You know, they're all, you know, hitting it further. Uh, they're all fearless, and and you know, so Tiger doesn't have that intimidation factor anymore. He's kind of like a, you know, he's like that, you know, kind of that legend that people are still oohing and eyeing over about all the things that he used to do, but he just can't do them anymore.
0: Um, refresh my memory, the amateur that, that started out uh, pretty strong, uh, did he make the cut? I don't remember. Oh, the kid, uh, was it Thompson? It was it Thompson, I believe. I'm Thompson. Gonna
2: mess up myself. yeah, now. yeah. Yeah, he had he, he the, the lead briefly. Uh, on the first day, he was under this magical run. He did not make the cut. Actually, only one amateur made the cut, Howard. Um, and uh, he's a young guy named John Pack, actually, yeah. from Scotch Plains, New Jersey, right here in, the, in our backyard. Um, and kind of one unlikely guy of amongst the amateurs. There were 13 amateurs. John Pack was the only guy that made it through uh, and made the cut. So he was subsequently, obviously, the low amateur. But uh, he's a Jersey kid. um and uh, who, who's a senior of Florida State, and he's getting ready to turn pro uh, when you know when he's done with his college
0: career. Hey, he shot seventy four yesterday. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, I mean he, he had a tough go on Saturday. I, I spent some
0: time with him. I did a column on him Saturday for Sunday's post. Huh. And he shot seventy nine, and he was disappointed.
2: Um, but he did. He shot seventy four yesterday, which is pretty good in those conditions. Cool, windy. Um. You know, and, and, and the thing that was cool was the USGA, he, his family, nobody, you know, obviously no family or friends are allowed to come because there's no spectators, but I guess the USGA made some provisions for, for some of the people that were in contention. I think if you were in the top 10, you're allowed to have, going into Sunday, you're allowed to have some, some people there. And... Uh, and they allowed John to have his parents there yesterday, which is pretty cool uh, for him, which is, you know, obviously playing his first PG Tour event, first pro event, you know, being at U.S. Open and then being the low amateur, his parents
0: were allowed to you know, walk around and witness it, which was a pretty cool thing. Yeah, well, you know, reading your column, I learned a lot of stuff. And so now that I found out reading your column where Rick Pitino's house is off the golf course at Wingfoot, I think I'll just drop in on him.
2: It's a pretty nice spread. I got to tell you, it's 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 impressive. It's literally if you're watching if you watch the golf behind the third green, you couldn't miss it. It was a white house right behind the third green, which is now long par three. And he actually had set up a grandstand in the yard that kind of could see over the fence. And they were he was hanging out there with his Iona assistants uh, hanging out all week. So it was yeah, it was pretty. Pretty, pretty cool.
0: I, I, I would have liked to have gone over and visited myself, except there was no access from the golf course. You could have to leave the property just to get over to the house. So. Yeah, well, I spent, uh, I spent uh, uh, four years around Rick when broadcasting the Celtics games when he was coaching up there. And I, I, yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Yeah, you know, I, look, Rick is uh, he's a charming guy. Uh, he's <laughs> He did a great job at Louisville with the championship and Kentucky with the championship. You know, he was just—it was just—he tried to do the same things at Kentucky, in Boston, with the same philosophy, and it just didn't work. But you know, yeah. I saw him just before he left Boston. I said, "Do you think your legacy is going to be hurt?" And he goes, "Not in college basketball." And he was right. He was right. That's, yeah. that's his comfort zone. Fair enough, no question. Hey, thanks for your time, Mark. Appreciate it. Hi, right, Howard. Thanks for having me on. Stay safe. Mark Canazero of the New York Post, he got a nice gig, you know? Writes, goes to golf tournaments, goes to nice places. Most of the time. DeChambeau, interesting guy. Power. People love power. And this guy hits the ball. 380? Are you kidding me? He averaged 325 for the week. Nobody does that. And if you don't think that's intimidating to the other players, you're mistaken. He's hitting a bad drive. He's hitting it 320. And he's still 20 yards ahead of anybody. Used to be when you hit the ball 300 yards, you were in pretty good shape. This guy is making mincemeat of par fives. You get a 600-yard par five. Okay? Not every week, but a lot sometimes. And he hits the ball 380. He's got 220 left. Four iron. I mean, he's making a mockery out of a hard game. At least he did this week. Appreciate your time, folks. we got a lot more to do this week. Stay safe. I'm Howard David. This is Howard David Live.